If you're a fan of the 430 movie, you'll love Best Movies Never Made, hosted by myself, Josh Miller. And Steven Scarlatta. Where we explore some of the greatest movies never made, like E.T. 2. Johnny Quest. Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. And Halloween 3D. New episodes available every other Monday, wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're a fan of Inglorious Trexperts, you're going to love Trexperts Briefing Room. A Trexperts new series. Briefing Room? What is that? I was about to explain, then you interrupted oh, me. I'm it sorry. Is, it's curated audio commentaries of classic Star Trek episodes from the original series all the way through Enterprise. You're going to love it as we explore the behind-the-scenes making of all these wonderful Star Trek episodes with cast and crew that you would never expect to hear doing audio commentaries on Star Trek. Sounds like fun. It will be, and you can <laughs> find it on the Inglorious Trexperts podcast feed and on the new Trexperts briefing podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's go see what's out there. Hey, if you want to watch a great podcast that none of us are on, check out Best Movies Never Made, available every other Monday from screenwriter Josh Miller and producer Steven Scarlatta as they go behind the scenes of some of the greatest movies never made with fantastic guests like Steve Melching, Ashley Miller, and a lot of other people you have heard of. And not Darren Docterman. Yet. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you'll be on the show. They just invited me to be on an episode about James Bond. I wonder why. Maybe it's because I have a new book out called Nobody Does It Better, The Oral History of James Bond, available now wherever you get your books. Hey everybody, welcome to the Cartoon Bar Room, where industry professionals gather to talk about all things animation. I'm your co-host, Stephen Melching, writer of such shows as X-Men the Animated Series, Batman the Brave and the Bold, Transformers Prime, Star Wars the Clone Wars, and I'm here with my co-host, Ashley Edward Miller. <gasps> right? Hey guys, it's me, um, and I've done a couple of things. Uh, you know, stuff like X-Men First Class, Thor, and the upcoming... Dota, Dragon's Blood, which will be co-starring this man, the dream, the legend, our next guest, uh, Mr. D. Troy Bradley Baker. Baker. <laughs> yeah, D. Bradley Baker is on. He's in. He's in the. We the couldn't house. get him, but it was like, like, who else do we know that has the name of Baker? Baker, so yeah, the lower third. <laughs> Totally. Um, Tom Baker, <laughs> Doctor Who, TV's Doctor Who. <laughs> Voice actor, handsome young man about town, uh, star and multiple award winner for his roles in video games such as The Last of Us, uh, Far Cry 4, Bioshock, and as I said, um, a uh, just an immensely talented member of the uh, the cast of Dota Dragon's Blood uh, playing what I think um, is is one of my favorite villains that I've, I've ever written uh, and, and and certainly one of my favorite performances in a in a in a villain an antagonist role there you uh, go the invoker uh, Troy Baker ladies and gentlemen and other people Wow. Yeah. What just happened? I pushed a button and my, my computer did something. I thought you did Bye. something, Zach. Bye, Troy. Look You're at this. Bye, everybody. Out. It's wonderful. We voted you um, off the for having me. I So we're off and running. We are. I I would push against that. I don't think he's a villain. Not spoiling anything. But I don't think you can... I, I never think of myself playing a villain. Oh, that's what happened. I never think of myself as playing a villain, right? I, I think of myself as playing a character. What is happening right now? Something is... 
It's all happening live, people. This is yeah. like, like one of those great moments where things are happening in real time. This is like literally, the like worlds. all of a sudden, my computer decided to go. You said, "See all of the stuff." There it goes. Now it's working without a net, people. Buttons, yeah, like but I pushed buttons somehow. Something happened. Oh my god! It's, it's okay. We got you, baby. My audio is going to be no good. NG on the audio. Wow, this is fantastic. I don't believe that anybody ever plays an antagonist, or they they play an antagonist, right? But they don't play a a villain. If they're playing a villain, then you're you're playing you're you're playing it wrong. You know what I mean? Like there's there's playing the villain is boring. Playing the hero is boring because everyone's a hero of their own story. I believe that my character is the hero. I think that's fair. Yeah, a great a great antagonist always has a strong point of view, always thinks they're doing what's best for them, themselves or their worldview. Yeah, and keeping yourself obviously from ever, you know, starting to write, we're not so different, you and me. We're not going to go down that route. But it's to me, it's it's always I I and there's I'm sure as, as as writers for you guys, it's a struggle as well when you 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 spend days, weeks, months, years crafting this character, right? Literally bringing it to life as the black raises from the white on the page, and then hey, buddy, are we gonna say goodnight? Hold on, guys. Oh, it's okay. Can I tell you something real quick? Oh, look at that. This is my dude. This is Traveler Hyde. Hi, buddy. I'm stronger and we'll take care of the rest. Frighten up your distressed. Sleep as long and as well as you can. We know that we are right here for the evening. And we can't wait to see you. <laughs> <laughs> Love you, Mom. Here. See, that's a great moment. That's a sweet moment. How much did you have to pay to rent that kid to make you look human? I mean, <laughs> I do that was I a can. great performance as a dad. I mean, it's not even my kid. I believed God. it. Yeah, totally. An actor um, prepares. He loves pushing buttons. And then I, that's why, like, a lot of times my computer doesn't work. <laughs> and I came back and I'm like, what? Uh, what just what just happened? Um, but I, I think that, um, you know, you, you, you guys spend so much time writing this character, creating this character inside this world, especially, like, I mean, Stephen, you and I have worked together. This is our second thing we've worked on. I, I was looking at your credits, which, by the way, you start scrolling down your IMDb page, and it just keeps fucking going forever. Right. Like, I didn't even know when it was going to stop. But <laughs> I think the first show we worked on was maybe Transformers, Robots in Disguise. Yeah. And then uh, we've done uh, some of the Marvel shows uh, where you played Loki, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, Hulk and the Agents of Smash. I didn't realize you worked on X-Men. The original X-Men. I the, know. The 90s, yeah. I know. I didn't, what? That was my first job. My, I was going to say, were you getting coffee for everybody? Yeah, it was my very, <laughs> my very first professional writing job was uh, me and my my writing partner, Dave McDermott, uh, co-wrote like eight episodes. Stevie Melching. <laughs> little I could yeah, like little Stevie. <laughs> and then I, I forgot you were on uh, Carmen Sandiego, but I didn't write any episodes that your character was in. Do you know why I was on? Uh, yeah, Sandiego. looking at your hat. Uh, <laughs> Look, Jamie. Simone, I, I, I have to give a shout out to Jamie. Uh, Jamie Simone, who was one of the first people that ever gave me a um, a shot in this town, in this business of show. Um, and he's he's been a uh, 
he's always been a strong supporter, but it, it's more than that. He's, he's been a friend. Like, we've been at Dodgers games together, and <laughs> this is someone who, oh, ah, yeah, Troy, I'm going to bring you in real quick, and I'm just going to, like, you know, keep you gainfully employed. And, and it, it, uh, it almost always was at that moment where it's like, ah, maybe I should get out of this business. And Jamie will be like, hey, can, you, you want to come yell into a can for a nickel? <laughs> I'm like, sure. <laughs> and... This one, he was like, hey, I got this character on Karma San Diego. I want you to come in for it. I was like, okay. And it's, it's always just a yes for Jamie Simone. It's like, whatever he wants from me forever. It's like, you're in my debt, kid. So I go in <laughs> and, and I do my thing. And I just, the, even the, the, the producer on there was like, why are we bringing this guy in for that? And I walk in, it's like, Oh, you literally <laughs> are the guy on the page. It's like he was like, I didn't write it, I didn't write it, but I can tell you, it's like, oh, that the guy that wears a fedora is like, I know a guy. <laughs> we need one who wears one in okay. real life. So Jamie Simone, for those of you who don't know, is a voice director. Uh, does he do casting as well? I Dude, guess J Jamie does it all. So and he Jamie runs. Simone. He owns a studio. Uh, what's the name of the studio? Studiopolis. Studiopolis. And, and yeah. the 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 shows that have come out of there are just ridiculous. I mean, there was Marvel stuff for days, um, uh, Naruto, and and a lot of the the anime that that was produced at least in L.A. came from Studiopolis. And, and Jamie is a, is a is an old studio drummer um, that got hip to the studio business and, and, and knew how to like plug in a microphone. And the next thing he knows, like 25 years later, he's running a studio that has multiple sites and locations and, and produces just a, a, an insane amount of, of content. But he's just a good dude. And he's just yeah. one of those people that I've, I've, I've seen Jamie angry, but I've never seen Jamie have a bad day. Yeah. And he's just this kind of effervescent, bubbly kind of guy. Um, and he loves talking about music and especially loves talking about drummers. Like we went down a rabbit hole one time of, of like old Steve Gadd videos and, and, uh, he's just a good dude. But the, I don't know if you know what's going on. Just, the, ladies and gentlemen, Jamie Simone, come on. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is his intro. You know what? I, we'll probably have him on the show at some point because he is a legendary director. The I work with him on stories that he could tell, man, yeah. are, are, are just like, I can't tell you who the person is, but I can't tell you like this person walked in. And you're like, I know exactly who you're talking about. But it's, it's, it's crazy to me that I, like, I, I grew up, literally, I, I, know I always tell this story. If anybody has listened, who's heard me kind of tell, like, what's your story, Troy? This is like the footnote, or at least the one chapter that everyone's heard. I bid. <laughs> the, growing up, I, cartoons were, were always my thing. Like, I, um, I would race home, and while kids were, like, going to football practice or baseball practice or whatever, I was rushing home. Because I was either going to watch the Disney Hour and I was going to watch, you know, DuckTales and Rescue Rangers and, and um, that whole hour. Or what I was waiting for really was the afternoon, which would be Batman the Animated Series. Um, and that, that to me was like, it, it was the first time ever that the, the comics that I had, had read literally were coming to life. And when I heard Kevin Conroy, uh, who at the time I didn't even know there was no IMDb, right? There was just like, there's just a voice that, <laughs> that to me, even though I loved what, you know, Michael Keaton did, it was, Michael Keaton was either bat, it was a crazy Batman or he was an interesting Bruce Wayne. But as far as the comics, the first person to ever do that was Kevin Conroy. He was Bruce Wayne and he was Batman. And it's, it, you, you have to cast either one. And he was the first person to be able to be able to do it, um, simultaneously with, with, with deafness on both sides. And, and to this day, it remains like the, the bar that all of us are just trying to stand up on our tippy toes and touch. And, and then you know, on opposite of him, of course, you had Mark Hamill, who I realized, and what I would do is I would, I would tape these episodes 
and I would watch them back. And I would you know, like the little wavy vision when you pause the screen, it was like, okay, <laughs> so Andrea Romano was the voice director. So that means that there's someone who's directing people. Kevin Conroy was Batman. Mark Hamill is Joker. Like, That's unfortunate for that guy. He's got the same name as the guy that played Luke Skywalker. <laughs> you know? And you've got all of these people that were just like, what, what an amazing cast. And then, you know, flash forward years later, I'm sat alongside some of these people and I'll never forget the first time that I worked with Kevin Conroy and we were doing Arkham City and, and we're on the uh, Warner Brothers lot and I had left, they, they were doing stuff with Kevin and Mark and then they were just going to get some stuff with Kevin and I'm just in there waiting, I don't know why, but there's like a big press day and so Mark is coming outside and, and Mark and I just hang in the waiting room and we were talking about the Stones and Beatles and everything, I was like, this is not real, like, this is not the moment that I get and then I get to go inside and it's going to be a scene between me and Kevin and so we're getting set up and they're setting up the mic and everything and Kevin's on the other side and just this tall, stoic, statuesque man and I haven't even said hi to him and I go, um, hi Kevin, I'm, I'm Troy. He's like, hello. Cool, okay. He's not being cold or distant or anything. He's just, he's just focused on his work and I was like, I may never get another opportunity and so I do the thing that everyone goes, oh, you didn't ever do that. Do that? I yeah. went, Hey man, uh, I'm sure you don't remember this, but there was an episode of the animated series and he just looks up at me and I was like, well, I'm in it. And I said, um, <laughs> I said it, was, it, was a, it was a Mad Hatter episode. It was Bruce Wayne and Bruce Wayne wakes up and his parents were, I don't, I mean, it, it was crazy because you're Bruce Wayne, but you're also not bad. And I started doing this really bad pitch of one of the best episodes of the animated series and he saves me graciously and he goes, it's one of my favorite episodes, too. Did he, he say it like Batman or Bruce Wayne? It's one of my favorite episodes, <laughs> I'm, too. I'm both. Yeah, he was like, Perchance to Dream. It's my favorite episode, too. Oh, yeah. And I was like, man, and it was the first time that I ever felt like I'm not crazy for, for like, I'm not the only one who's such a fan of, of what I'm doing. And we're all grateful to be employed, but also like, no, man, we love this. Like, that we, we do this. And, and sometimes they throw money at us, but but regardless, it's like we, we do this because we're compelled to and we're passionate about it. So it's 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 funny to be sat here next to you and go, it's like, do you understand like Saturday morning changed when all of a sudden X-Men started going, hey, we're gonna really start exploring, you know, some some serious plot points and storylines and character from X-Men. And it's still, those two shows to me, everyone that's working in this business, Batman the Animated Series and X-Men are like, we're still trying to get back to that. And I, I really, I, I applaud like the Young Justice team because they are like the, yeah. the, holy shit, the stuff that we've worked on with this. But it's just, there's, there's these constant, and even honestly, Ashley, with you and I, it's like cartoon is this convenient term, but it's, it's really this notion of, we're exploring these big themes. We're just doing it in an animated form because there's no way you could ever capture this with a camera. For sure. And yeah, yeah. I think the thing for, for me that's been interesting about working with you that I, I, I didn't quite, I mean, I expected it, but didn't quite expect it. Like When you work in live action, there's, you know, television, film, whatever, there's, there's always some collaboration with the actor, there's there's always some kind of conversation, even if just as the writer, I'm responding to what I see in dailies. 
right? And, and we start to write to that. We start writing to the actor's strength, you know, or just watching them on set, kind of seeing how they are. Things, things kind of change. And, you know, uh, I, uh, I was caught almost by, by surprise by, the, <laughs> by how things evolved on the show or even just little things. I have to tell you, um, you know, there's a, there was a moment. You came in your very first day and I didn't know what to expect from you. Um, you're larger than life. Uh, your <laughs> reputation precedes you. Uh, and you Sometimes were, to, my, to a fault, though. You know what I mean? Sometimes, like that? Yeah. yeah. But but as far as I'm concerned, like, it's it's now, it's, it's 100% to your credit. I would recommend you to anybody. Like, But you came in so prepared, so prepared, so deeply into the scripts, and you gave a line reading that blew my mind. Like, it was one line that I didn't realize until you spoke it was the key line of the entire show, the key line of your entire character. It, it did not even dawn on me um, what it was you were saying until you said it. And it just, it opened up a lot of things for me. It was, you know, stories are stories, dead is dead. Nothing can change that. Not even I can change that. And I went, oh my God, he just told us what the show is. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> And it was just, it was like, it was hearts popping everywhere after that. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's funny. Like people sort of look at this as, you know, or they have this perception that animation is kind of the sort of the, the also ran of, of, you know, television drama or drama. And it's just not, it's just not. Yeah. Well, you know, for you, to your point, Troy, about uh, the Fox Kids lineup, we had Eric and Julia Leewald on our last uh, episode who did the mm. X-Men uh, animated series. It was that Batman the animated series, X-Men, and a lot of those other Fox Kids shows that showed us the potential of, for animation to not just be sort of a, a, a kid's ghetto. You know, it was, these were great stories with great themes uh, that anyone can watch. And those just cast such a long shadow that I think now we're sort of reaping the benefits of a generation of people that grew up watching those shows that now aspire to make shows that are that are like that. And and animation now the the stigma of adults watching animation is largely gone. Mm -hmm. So now we're getting this great renaissance of adult animation like Dota, Dragon's Blood, and a number of other shows that are made, you know, that are that are. TVMA or, or TV, you know, for grownups that you can really tackle, you know, nothing's off limits. You don't have a sensor telling you what you can and can't do. And it's a really exciting time, I think, uh, for animation. It's not just, and it, well, look, we can sit here and make this a love letter to the, the, the shows that we grew up watching or working on. <laughs> How old are you, Stephen? <laughs> um, but it's, it's also the, the fact that, like, I, I remember being... Um, in the in the world of the old, I was we went uh, to the TCL, uh, the Chinese theater, and they were doing a just a, a sit down with Alan Burnett, mm. and he was talking about his like, oh yeah, yeah I'll, I'll show you how we did the show, and um, like Mask of the Phantasm was something they were just doing with to keep everybody employed between seasons, and they were just like, let's basically cram out a season on our break. Um, but even the, like the notion of how they made that show, where it was the first show ever to start on black paper as opposed to white. And so it's, it's not just like, let's be gritty and, and tell sad stories. It's about let's reinvent the way. Because before, like growing up, even before then, as great as Scooby-Doo is, and it's, it's, it's seminal work and it, it, it cast a long shadow on animation and everything. It was like, all we really need to do is animate about 16 minutes and then we're just going to reuse a whole bunch of shit. <laughs> 
all the way throughout. We've got stock walk cycles that we can use and we'll keep rotating backdrops, you know. But as opposed to actually, what if we made backdrops and, and backgrounds and environments part of the world and part of the story as opposed to just necessary assets that must be created? So it's to me, it, it's, it's, you're right. Those, are the, those were the giants. And then people crawled up on their shoulders and then somebody's now crawling, climbing up on those shoulders, <laughs> trying to to create something and see how far we can push this medium. And I, I I'm so excited that like actually the the thing if I can dote on you, Dota on you <laughs> uh, for a while. The the thing that I love is um, the second that I found out that Yuri was in the show, which Yuri is another person that when I first got to LA was like, come here, let me show you what never to do, <laughs> and. <laughs> Um, he, he's remained a, a dear friend and he's one of the people that I look up. He's just one of the, if you ever wonder why the world keeps spinning, you can probably point to Yuri Lowenthal. He's one of the people that continue to make it happen. Mm -hmm. Um, but he, uh, he was like, here's what you need to know about the show. This guy's in charge and you're in good hands. I was like, <laughs> okay. And like the first thing that you did was like, let's all go out to have dinner together and you'll never be together again. But for this one brief shining moment, we will remember that we were a cast together. And that simple step is so important because it changed it from, hey, this is what we do on Tuesdays. Um, which I've had those jobs before. To where it's like, we just record every week. To, I want you guys to understand you're our cast. And it's important that you remain our cast because there's a connection that exists outside of the booth or outside of the recording room. There's, there's, a, there's a connection that we want you guys to feel that you're a part of making this thing with us as well. And even the dinner afterwards where it was, um, Ash, you took me to dinner and you were like, I need you, I need a, just a one-on-one -on -one with you and walk you through uh, your character. And I'm, I remember the moment we were sitting at, at um, public school mm -hmm. and I'm sitting there and you talk about hearts popping and everything. I remember you were telling me and you were talking to me and all of a sudden the din of the restaurant just kind of faded away and your voice just went very, very distant. And I'm sitting there looking at you and I was like, this guy is way smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs> like to a frightening level. And there's literally nothing that I can ever do. Like to, uh, there's nothing I could, I could pull rabbits out of hats and <laughs> pick a card and, and there's nothing that I'm going to be able to do. He's like, oh, that's absolutely, I understand exactly how you did all of that. <laughs> I was like, there's nothing I can do to impress you. And it was this, there was this wonderfully disarming moment where I was like, why don't I just sit in, and I've been fortunate enough to, to have people that have crossed my path where it's like, hey, dude, uh, I'm, I'm here to, to be a resource for you to learn from. And there's so much that I've learned from you. And I've never found myself, as an actor, I've never found myself wanting um, for context, information, intention, uh, stakes, um, anything. And that is something that for an actor, we think that what we want is a really good role to sink our teeth into. And that's not it at all. Because you can have the greatest role that's been handed to you. And you're like, oh my God, oh, I'm going to play this character that I've always wanted to play. But if I don't understand the position that that character serves in that story, if I don't understand the stakes of the scene, if I don't understand the intention of why this was the line that was written at three o'clock in the morning that kept the writer up writing it, 
If I don't understand any of that, the character is shit. The character just doesn't, it's, it's an empty vessel. It's, it's this flaccid sack of flesh that's trying so hard to just emote. And it, it, it's, it's so, it is the fuel. Um, and I, man, I spent a lot of time listening to only the good and ignoring any of the criticism because it didn't prop up my ego the way that I wanted it to. And so I would show up on set and now I've got some juice because now I've got accolades and now I've got roles that people remember. I'm the guy from the thing and I'm in number one on the call sheet. And so I show up and Troy's got ideas. You know what I think would be great if we did? What if uh, instead of the thing that you wrote and chose after diligent work and skill and college <laughs> writing. <laughs> what if you just listen to my whimsical notions and I, I give him credit so, so much in, 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 in my story because he's just, he's one of those characters like in the Kimbellian thing. He's like the way, the, the, the mage that just kind of like <laughs> pulls my power away and then grants me back and sends me back on my path. But Brian Fleming from, from Sucker Punch Games who was the studio head uh, for Infamous 2, Second Son, and which I have a, a whole funny history with that studio and everything. But post-morteming the game, we, I, I went up to Seattle and I flew up to Seattle and I was like, he was like, tell me, just, I want to hear your perspective on, on our experience. And if there's any notes you have for the studio, we would love to, to, to hear from them. We respect your opinion. And I, I, I gave them to him. <laughs> I told him my ideas. And I, you know, here's what you should, you should do better. And I was like, you know, hey, man, you know, turnabout's fair play. You got anything for me? He goes, yeah, you're a very powerful force. I was like, thank you. He goes, that's not a compliment. And Brian Fleming is a mathematician. Like he is a right brain is like what comes out on vacations but it's mainly just a left. He's a problem solver. He's a coder. He's a designer. He's a game maker. And he said, you're trying to impact too far up the river or too far down the river. It's like, there's so much because the, the pages that we hand you, there's blood on them. And even in sessions, you know, uh, Stephen with you and I, I, I have now learned, and I, 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 I sat at a table read once and there was a writer that um, I came in with that, pompous, arrogant, you know, position of like, let me tell you what my ideas are. It's like, you know, I got an idea. He goes, hey man, just want to let you know, uh, if you have an idea, that's great, but uh, you need to be in the writer's room for that. And I was like, well, I mean, we're at a table where he's like, I don't want to hear your notes unless you sat down at a blinking white, a blinking cursor, or a blank white page and written the two words fade in. And I went, you're absolutely right. I don't need to, I'm sitting here literally with this book right in front of me. And because of a tweet that went out this week that everyone was talking about as far as the, the artistry of criticism. And in, in my booth over here, I've got the quote by Teddy Roosevelt that says it is the, it's not the critic who counts, but rather the one who gets in the ring. Could we point out the, the title of the book? Because for oh, people yeah. who aren't Sorry, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the, the Critic as Artist by Oscar Wilde. The written when, towards the end of his life, actually, he's 36. And it's kind of a more of a narrative uh, fictional account, two people talking, but I've just begun talking about the, or reading this book, but the quote by Teddy Roosevelt is not the critic accounts, but the one whose face is marred with uh, sweat and blood, who 
actually gets in the ring and does something. And what I realized is that I was got, I got really, really good. I wasn't giving good notes. I was giving good criticism. And I was really, really good at um, presenting my notes, but it was at the detriment to the person who had actually created the thing that I was criticizing. And instead of, and Neil Druckmann actually, I give a lot of credit to him as well. He goes, your first instinct is always to change the line. And that's a cheap punt. Instead, come to me and say, here's what I don't understand. Here's what I'm missing. I had a friend of mine who's a writer and he goes, never tell a writer what should change. Instead, come to them and goes, here's what I'm missing. Because now we're in, we're in cahoots. Now, now we're talking about the same thing together. It's like, here's what I'm missing. Oh, here's why you're missing that is because that happens in, you know, episode 206 and right now we're on 108 and I'm intentionally holding that back from you. So what I'm missing is the information for that. But if I go, here's what you should change. You're like, dude, we're breaking, you know, season two right now. And you don't, don't talk to me about what I need to change for <laughs> episode 103. <laughs> you don't know anything. So I, I've learned, I do not consider myself a writer. However, I am someone who has devoted himself diligently to the art of writing because I believe that it makes my job better. Whether I'm an actor, whether I'm a director, it is something that I need to understand in the same way that when I was on a film set or whatever, I would walk up to the sound guy and go, hey, what does that do? If I was in a studio, I would go, hey, what does that button do? What does that microphone do? What is the purpose of this? I just want to learn because then I understand how the whole thing works. And as I, as I learn more, I realize that I am an, a, I'm a, 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 a sprocket in the cog of the wheel of the watch that is just here to do its purpose and here to do its thing. Um, but I would say you're also more than that. Um, first, a good sprocket. Yeah, a, a good sprocket. sprocket. But <laughs> first, I'll kind of the asterisk and all this is like one of my favorite quotes from Oscar Wilde is, please do not shoot the piano player. He's doing his best. Um, <laughs> which is, you know, my, my, own, my own personal mantra. Um, but, you know, I, I spent a year in development on a on a on Red Sonia with with Brian Singer and we would go through draft after draft after draft and he would read these scripts to me that I had written out loud man and there is nothing like your director reading your shit out loud to you like um Donna <laughs> did that on Thor that's real pressure because he's like all right let's Exterior. run this scene I'll play Thor and you play Jane oh like, no. What? no but one of the things <laughs> I got from Brian was he was like look you know he would ask me questions about lines and he would say, uh, I'm going to be standing on a set and my lead is going to come up to me and she's going to ask me, why am I saying this? You know, or, or what is, what's on my mind? What was I thinking about before I walked into this scene? And what am I thinking about after I walk out of it? You know, what is all, all of that context? And that stuck with me um, as I got into this show and, and started dealing with, with you guys. So, you know, I, for me, I never saw any of you as as cogs. Is is more? Yeah. It's collaborative. I mean, I have more information than you do, but part of my Absolutely. job is to tell you as much as I can tell you, so that so that you can get to the place that I know you can get to. I, well, we're, I, we ask a lot of actors. You know, we ask you guys to come into a booth, and we put lines in front of you. We ask you to you know to emote to sort of bare your souls and and make us believe what this what your characters are doing. And and it sounds like you know, it can be difficult if you don't have everything that you need um, to get to that, to get to that point. I walk into a session having read the script and having a, a limited but 
visceral connection and understanding of the character. And I walk in with my movie already played out. And then I set that all off to the side. Because especially if I'm in the situation that we've been in where it's, there's, there's someone else to read off of and there's someone that I'm in the scene with. Um, Richard Burton is a great quote from Richard Burton. He's, someone asked him once, Sir Richard, how do you do the acting so well? He goes, it's quite easy. I will give you everything. But if you give me nothing in return, I will take it from you. <laughs> and what I love about that is it sounds very arrogant, but it's not. It's the understanding from Richard Burton that there is something outside and bigger than, than me or the other person that, that exists, and that's the scene. The scene is a beast, and it needs to eat. And we need to feed the beast, because if we don't, the beast will die. And in that sense, it's not, we're not really actors, we're zookeepers. <laughs> we're here to feed the beast. And ain't nobody coming to the zoo to see the zookeeper. They come to see the beast. So it's not about, my job is important, but it is not the most important. What's most important is the scene. Because who gives a fuck if my, if my mo version of the movie that I want to play out is, is the choice. If the scene doesn't think so and it spits that food out, my job as an actor is to go, well, what about the veal? <laughs> you know? So that's what I've got to do. So the, the hardest part, and this is what I've learned, and I, I, the, the source, the, the, you'll hear me say this a lot in sessions, we're going to get letters. And I worked with an actor once who had been around the block long enough and he had an idea about a scene and this specifically the approach to the character and it was it was the right choice but as is often the case our betters did not agree with that and they went with what would be considered the obvious choice and i saw the glimmer in his in his eye dim when they chose that route and he goes we're going to get letters and that's all he said about it and i was like that i want I want that, what you have right there, to be able to go, fine. The version of my movie is better, but we're making your movie. That is what I have worked diligently to be able to do. And guys, I have left, I've had to come back to the, to the next week of session and apologize um, because I've left in a huff and I have... Um, you know, dragged people through the mud and, and when someone gives me a line read and made it very, very clear that they shouldn't do that, um, as opposed to understanding the position that they're coming from is, I, I, I've been taking French for the last 221 days. And I, I took French in, in two years in high school, but I, as I get older, I want to keep my mind pliable and I want Traveler to understand that he doesn't live in California. He lives on this planet. And there are a lot of other cultures, a lot of other peoples, a lot of other languages. And I want him to learn other things. And so we're trying to teach him stuff. And so I try to talk to him in French as I learn. And, and um, my dear friend is like a little sister to me, Laura Bailey. I finally convinced her to start taking French too. So she's way behind me. Um, 
she's way smarter than me, but she just started French later. And so the lessons that I am learning, she hasn't necessarily learned yet. And so sometimes I'll speak to her in something she's like, I'm not there yet. And my job is not to get frustrated with her as, as her friend. I don't go, well, why haven't you learned that yet? It's like, all right, so how about I talk to you? What? Tell me what you're excited about. And tell me what words you are. And maybe it's a refresher for me. Maybe I, oh shit, you're right. You know what? I forgot about that because I've been so focused on this thing over here. I forgot that that's actually the, the root conjugation of that word and the transitive for all that, all that kind of stuff. And so if somebody gives me a line read, instead of going, excuse me, I do not take line reads. I just go, all right, so what is he trying to convey? What is she trying to convey? What am I missing right now? I hear. Yeah, okay. That's funny because I have to tell you, I, I never had more anxiety on this show in the recording booth than the first time, you know, we were sitting. I don't know who we were recording. It was, it was the, it was the first day. It was probably, <laughs> it probably was Yuri. We're like the, the pressure should the have been zero because he He's does suck, but human, number one. He's a shitty actor. <laughs> he, absolutely awful. He is, he is the worst. <laughs> Uh, uh, I, I I can't say enough good things about him because I can't think of anything good to say. <laughs> but you know, we were we were sitting there, and there was just uh, I can't remember what the line was, but whatever it was, I just I wasn't feeling it. And Meredith Lane, our casting director, who is amazing, you know, I want to get on the show. Ugh. She looks at me and she says, "Well, Ashley, just just give him the read." And I said, "Are you crazy?" Because I, I came from live action. It's like, you don't do that. That's like how you get killed. That's how like an actor destroys. That's like the, in case of emergency, break glass because like your background character who has like a line is screwing things up and you need to fix it and move on and finish your day, right? You just don't do it. But, and I hate doing it, honestly, like, like even to this day, but I, I did learn from Meredith little things like, you know, how do you communicate with the actor? It's like, well... You say things like, well, can you put a question mark at the end of it? Perfect. Right? Or looking at the line, and this is something that I started to do before, um, you know, we would do recording sessions, is I would go through this script and I would start doing things like, okay, what's the key word hmm. in this? You know, like, what's the key idea, like, that's underneath all of this? So that maybe we can talk about that because I just, I hate to do the line read. Because key word and key idea are, to me, two totally different things. Mm-hmm. Because they can, what's the key word is like, we well, need to hit that door. But as opposed to someone walking in and, and surprising you. The best, if you cast well, the beauty of having an actor walk in and go, holy shit, never thought about it that way. Ian McShane walks in and for Deadwood and the, the, the character, Swearingen, was supposed to be this tall, imposing, huge character. And in walks Faustian floating Ian McShane. <laughs> and just destroys the role. So to me, it's, it's about, I want to be, or one of my best, if you ever have a chance to watch the behind the scenes of Forgetting Sarah Marshall, believe it or not, the... The original, Russell Brand walks in and the original character of Aldous Snow was like this bookish uh, poet. It was this very demure person, which is supposed to play opposite of, uh, what's his name? Who is this, you know, Seth goofy. Rogen? Seth Rogen? No, Jason not Seth. Se Jason Siegel? Yeah, Jason Siegel. Right. Yeah. 
who's supposed to be this, you know, goofy, lovable, affable person. And he's like, oh, this very quiet uh, person. Russell Brand comes in there and he's like, don't read the script. No, we're not going to read the script. It's not very funny what we're doing right now. That's funny. And he threw the pages away and just like he created the character in the room and the people were like, that, that's who we want. Now, that is an odd, any actor's real is like, well, that's all I got to do is just go in and fuck off. It's like, no, that's not it at all. <laughs> But it's he understood what the what the he he had a conversation with the beast and understood that the beast was oddly a vegetarian and wasn't a carnivore and instead just wanted a bunch of cabbage and carrots and that's what he gave it instead of going no 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 pork rinds that's what he wanted I'm gonna give you exactly this if I was in a session once with it with an actor and we're all kind of being quiet they're a very big famous person. And the director is clearly nervous and is, is trying to do the whole dance around giving a line read and finally gives the line read. And it wasn't like we were trying to work on the same. We're on line 15 for the longest time. It was give just, me the keys, you fucking <laughs> cocksucker. Give me the keys. <laughs> what the fuck? He goes, he gives a line read and he goes, I apologize, it's no reflection on you. And the person doesn't even look up from their script. He goes like, oh, I'm fully aware it doesn't reflect on me. <laughs> and it's true. Giving a line read, actors take that as, I'm not doing my job. And the truth is, no, you haven't failed. I have failed. If I'm, if I'm in that booth or if I'm, if I'm in the director's chair, and I have to resort to a line read, I have failed. The actor has not. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's, that's what why I, it's like, I hate to do it, sure. Yeah, it's awful. It's, it's what I tell you know, Meredith all the time. It's like, I, I love to give my actors, you, I mean, because we've got the best cast. Our cast is so amazing. An amazing it, cast. It, just the room to, to create to interpret, to do things that surprise me and delight me. Because I, I never know, like, what you guys are going to do that I'm going to find. And it's just, and I, I find all of the best stuff, all of the most emotional stuff comes from um, you guys doing your job, right? Which the is, difference, though, is that you have the benefit, again, of information and, and knowledge going, I've already boarded this out. And they're already working on, and it's a lot of dollars to do the animation that we're doing right now. And I know that you want to make this this quiet, intimate moment. You're 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 in a a, a, a massive ancient cave, <laughs> 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 and and I don't want my I I can't all of a sudden jump my camera to you because you feel like having a quiet moment. I need you to be in a conversation where you're having two people in a, in a massive cave <laughs> talking <laughs> so that I don't understand. So, it, well, don't, don't, you know, uh, dictate my performance. It's like, no, I'm going to dictate your performance because that's, that's our job. Our job is to go, here's the challenge that's put before you. The challenge put before you is that quiet, intimate moment that you want to have, you need to somehow externalize that. Mm -hmm. Go. <laughs> that's, mm -hmm. that's fun. That's, that's the shit as an actor we... If, if an actor ever comes in, because I did this all the time, if the only choice that I have is the one that I think of and, and I can do, I haven't done my job. You say I came in prepared. And the problem is, or that the, the, I, I really take that as a compliment and I appreciate that because I used to always come in rehearsed. Give me the keys, you fucking cocksucker. Mm -hmm. that's, that's what I would do. And someone goes, 
Uh, operative word there is probably going to be cocksucker. I think we're. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to lean on that one. It's like give me, give me, give me, give me, give me the keys. I'm sorry, I'm not. I'm not hearing it. And then I would get flustered and frustrated, as opposed to what is the point? Why is he doing that? Because mm-hmm. the most interesting read of all of that is Kevin Spacey's. <laughs> we always remember Benicio del Toro's, but the most interesting read is is Kevin Spacey's. Give me the keys, you fucking cocksucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of tossed off and like, hey, fuck you. Yeah. Well, and also in retrospect, you understand that's the the <laughs> fuck man. He's a great he's a great actor. Mm-hmm. The understanding of him going, I'm the one who did it, and this is the devil playing with everybody. I'm just enjoying the game right now. I can pull out whenever I want. Give me the keys, you fucking cops. Verbal Kent's actor, notwithstanding, Verbal Kent is Rolo Tomasi and Verbal Kent are two, and some of the two of the greatest. If you don't know Rolo, one hundred percent, and that's one of my favorite moments in film. I mean, we could just have now a thirty-minute conversation just about the Rolo Tomasi moment. <laughs> I was just talking to someone about the fact that Guy Pierce gave an interview once and he said, Russell and I were coming up at the same time and I was a little bit out in front. Like I had a little more, a little more juice on the street. But he blames that movie, LA Confidential, for being the, the meteoric <laughs> rise of Russell Crowe because Russell Crowe goes on to do... I mean, he had already done Gladiator at that point, right? Because... LA Confidential. LA Confidential came out in 98, I think. Yeah. Gladiator um, was what, 2000? 2000. Yeah. yeah. So he blames 97. Um, he blames LA Confidential for the one is like, because he cast Russell Crowe as the brooding, uh, empathetic character. And Guy Pierce was more the, you know, nerdy bookish. Actually, like, who was one of the great characters? I just, that interrogation scene, man. Which one? Like, well, no, he's got like the two kids in the separate rooms and he's figuring out Put that they got the, the girl. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there's no sense of a goddamn dog. Dude, come on. That whole movie <laughs> yeah. is amazing. Yeah. I miss Kevin Spacey. Yeah. Had to be an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> Actors. You know? God damn it. <laughs> don't let this be the lull. Don't, don't, don't let no, Kevin Spacey go out on that. Lull uh, right. to... Okay. So. Go. Here's here's the, the big question for me, for you, right? So, and it just comes from the difference between, again, being in live action and being in animation. Because I know, you know, you take an actor, you put him on a set, mm-hmm. you put him in a costume, you put him in makeup, you give him props, mm-hmm. right? And you're giving that actor context that's physical, right? That's right. expressed physically. Other artists have created things that kind of put them in the in the scene. And it's still a little different. It's artificial. There's a light in your face. It's like, it's, it's all of that. You're cutting at strange times. You can't go through the whole scene. It's like you're shooting out of order, whatever. But you're, you're in a space, right? But in animation, you're in the you don't have any of that. It's just you. And you're standing in a booth and there's no context at all except what's on the page. So how does that how does that change how you how you prepare for something in animation? How does that change like you know how you approach your your performance? Or do you even feel that difference? Oh yeah, you do. If you don't, you're lying. Um to yourself or to the powers that be. I used to apologize to all of my TV and film buddies who were off doing shows and movies and real acting, I say in rabbit quotes, um, 
because I was, I'm doing this voice stuff now, but I mean, you know, I also just went out and, and read for such and such. And I, I just had a meeting with so-and-so because I felt for the longest time that this was a reductionist view or a, um, a derivative of um, acting. But I, I realize now that, or realize much later that that's what TV and film was for theater for the longest time is that, oh, you're doing that. No, real acting is on the theater. And then before that, people were like, well, no, real acting is. And there's even signs that you can still find in downtown Los Angeles where it says no players, players not wanted. And they were considered that players were actors. And the Shakespearean quote, all the world's a stage and the people merely players. And they were considered transients and, and um, not welcome because they weren't real artists. And so this notion of apologizing for this until I realized a friend of mine said the exact same thing. is like, man, I'm doing this movie right now and I'm not that character, but then I go through hair and makeup and then I go into wardrobe and then they put the sword in my hand and the scar on my cheek and I'm on set and everything else just kind of fades away and I am that character. And I was like, let me tell you about what it looks like going through the works on a game. When I put on a skin-tight mocap suit and walk around in a Kubrickian white room with lights everywhere and the disco balls on my body and the camera right here, or I walk into a booth where there's nobody else but somebody on the other side of the glass, me and a mic and a script. We both have the same job. We both are met with the same beast to feed. How do I do that job? Because the job doesn't change. And so what I found is that it actually is the purest form of acting in a lot of ways. Because everything that normally serves to inform you, like you said about the character, the scene, is taken from you or is actually acting actively against you. You're not in this ancient cave. You're on Coanga Boulevard in a studio. And there's coffee that they just made too, by the way, if you would like some. <laughs> and you don't have a sword in your hand. You have a stand in front of you and a mic. How do you do that? And it all comes from the fact that the, at the essence is the scene and the currency are the words. And not so much the words that I am given the task to speak, but the words that exist fully on the stage. And on the, and on the script, character crosses to this, kneels down, picks up this, looks up to see this, and says. And for me, it is that is the character. The, the character exists as much on the white as it does in the black. And if I'm focused too much on the black that exists under my name in the script, then I have not only done a disservice to the writer, the director, the producers, the people who clean the studio who are going to have to come in and clean up after me. But most importantly, to that character and to the beast that will no doubt go hungry by the end of that session. So that's how it motivates me. That's how it inspires me. And, so and I that, walk, yeah. That character is going to be really important to someone. That's something that I learned hmm. uh, when I was in college. Uh, I was uh, a clerk at a VHS rental store and I was reshelving movies one day and, and I couldn't believe somebody had rented out this piece of crap movie. And I, I mentioned that to my the owner of the store and, 
And the owner laughed and said, yeah, but think about it. You know, in my, every movie in this store is somebody's favorite movie. Damn straight, dude. And that stuck with me all these years. So I could be working on some, writing a script for some show that I really don't care about. It's a paycheck job. But I have to stop and think, you know, somebody out there is going to love this freaking show. And so I owe it to that person <laughs> to give give it my best efforts. And, and I imagine it's got to be the same for you because that character that you're playing, somebody's going to freaking love that character. I have been met with more times of people going, even a friend of mine once who brought up a character and I was like, all right, you saw some interview with me where I was given this thing that I did, some shit, and or you went through my IMDb, you're like random... And that's gonna be my favorite thing is like, dude, that that character is, is is spoke to me. I think that's the pinnacle of your work. I'm like, shut up. Like, no, man. Let me and let me tell you why. But you're absolutely right, man. There's this is a stupid story, but I was on a plane once <clears throat> coming back from Chicago, I think. And I'm sat next to this dude, and and I am not a guy who's like, so what do you do, travel partner? It's like, no. I cut to the skeleton. I, <laughs> yeah. I I will like look at someone and be like, yo, I just got out of prison. This is my first flight, so things get a little weird. And just do whatever I can is like go go on me in my my cave. I want to watch my. I miss flying so much. But this guy's sitting next to me, and 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 we somehow started talking. He's like, what do you do? I was like, I'm an actor or whatever. And he was like, uh, I'm in ads or whatever. And we're talking about campaigns. And I was like, you know what the best campaign I ever, ever saw was? And it was like early aughts, like maybe 99, 2000 even. And it was this campaign that you had to go, it was like once a month and you had to go to your computer. It wasn't even on TV. You had to go to your computer and log in and watch the new installment of the BMW films. Mm -hmm. And they got, oh. yeah, John Woo, John Frankenheimer, um, uh, Tony Scott did one. And it was starring Clive Owen as this hired gun driver. And it was just these beautifully shot, incredible little seven-minute movies or something like that. This guy's just looking at me. And I was like, it was brilliant, man. I was like, I wish you could find those somewhere, but you, you know, they don't live anywhere online. Like I've tried to look on YouTube and everything. You can't find them. And he goes, are you fucking with me? <laughs> and I went, no, I, I really think it's brilliant. He goes, that was my campaign. Whoa. <laughs> I was like, what? He goes, here's the deal. BMW had a thing where it's like, they leapfrog. It's like, we're going to make a new three series, then a five series, then a seven series, then whatever. It's like, we just happened to fall in a year where there wasn't a new model coming out. And they were like, what's our product this year? They was like, let's make the brand the product. He's like, so we took all of their advertising and said, what if we get these four directors to come and do this short? He's like, I pitched it and they fell for it. And he was like, it was just so ahead of its time. And I was like, I wish I could find it. He goes, give me your address. And I get home and like two weeks later, I get something in the mail and it's like, thanks. I'm really glad that, that meant something to you. We worked really hard on it. And it was a fucking DVD of the <laughs> BMW films. I was like, are you kidding me? So, Stephen, you're absolutely right. The thing that you're working on, if you're a writer or you're a producer, you're pitching something, and you're like, why am I doing this? Because you're very well likely, it's just as likely that you could make the thing that three yahoos are going to, 20 years from now, sit and go, do you remember this? Or some actor who's nervous about meeting one of his idols is going to go, there was an episode of the animated series 
or some actor who's going to have that moment in their session when they realize, maybe I've been doing this wrong. And maybe instead of feeding my own ego, I need to feed the beast. Your words could be the precipitator and the, and the progenitor for that. So it is, it's so much more than just a paycheck. It's the same thing as an actor. I do what I love and what I'm passionate about. Every once in a while, somebody throws me some money for doing it. That's, it's like, see, there's bitches. where you want the lull, right? It's like, oh, we got nothing. Okay, everybody. It was <laughs> and the, the other thing I think about is, you know, sometimes I feel like, you know, what I'm doing isn't really that important. It's I'm not changing the world. I'm not, you know, necessarily pushing the boundaries of the art form. And then I think, you know what? If what I'm doing can make somebody's life a little bit easier, like life is fucking hard. And, you know, when you're a kid, you come home from school, maybe you've been harassed at school, you're having a shitty day and you turn on the TV and like this show comes on and it makes you happy for half an hour. You know, if you can make somebody happy for half an hour, that's a great service, I think. Or you model whatever thing that you love being a hero, um, overcoming fear, overcoming obstacles, all the reasons why we why we read good stories and and it, I, I tell people all the time is like we we are storytellers at our base genetic level we are all storytellers it is the reason why we created language was to be able to communicate with each other and tell our story food is over there danger is over there i need to find a way to communicate that to you and that's where language came from so from the very since we were drawing on cave walls we've been storytellers we've just evolved and created this very elegant and, and uh, uh, dramatic way of, of doing so, but we're still just storytellers. So this is who we are. And these stories that we tell are ways for us to cathartically deal with X circumstance. Joseph Campbell didn't create the hero's journey. He just logged it. It was like, if you notice, this is what always happens. So... Every good story, the stories that we we want to watch, play, consume are a little bit of comedy, a little bit of drama, a little bit of tragedy, a little bit of triumph. That is a good story. It is the sine wave of the human condition. That is what we want to experience. That what you said about cathartically, right? Catharsis. For me, that's that's always the thing. Because when I think back to the shows that I loved when I was a kid, the moments that stuck with me, right? It's like, it's in Star Blazers is when Captain Avatar dies and Derek Wildstar realizes that he has to like captain the Argo. Like, and, you know, it's it's when, you know, Johnny Sacco says goodbye to Giant Robo. It's 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 all that, that, that catharsis, that feeling, right? It's like, I want to feel that. I remember that, like... As a kid, those are the things that stick. They're the things that stay. Mm. So in telling those stories, it's just how do we make story important? You make it important by making it worth feeling something about it and remembering that feeling. And, you know, for you and like, and for the, sort of the, the conversation that, that, you know, Steve and I are in as writers with, with you as an actor, you and Yuri and Kari and Laura and like, and, and Freya and, and our entire incredible cast. It's it's all about finding you know those moments where there is that there's not just that catharsis for us in writing it there's that catharsis for you in in acting it so that the audience can be invited in to me that's the trick you know that's that is the whole job I get to experience this twice I get to experience it when we make it 
And then I get to experience it when I get to watch it. And that that is a, I don't know, I can't think of any other industry that, that gets that kind of like double dipping excitement where we get done and we take off the headphones or we get out of the suit or we walk off the stage and we go, fuck, that was... Like, the, the, one of the last scenes that we shot <clears throat> on The Last of Us was, I, I think it was our entire afternoon was this one scene. Not because it was a, like a big set piece or anything. It was literally a two-page dialogue. And, but it was a very pivotal scene. It was the porch scene if you played the game. And Neil just wanted us to take our time and plumb the depths of it. And he's like, I've written these words. I want to see what you guys do with it. And it's an incredibly emotional scene, even though no one's wailing and, you know, rending their clothes and, you know, it's not that. It's, it's, it's all of the... Um, it's 10 years, seven years. Well, not really 10 years now of, of, of making that, living with those characters, culminating in this one single moment. And we just keep going over and over. And by the time we finally are, are done, and it's like, Neil always did a thing where it's, it's best that take means I want I print that. I want that one. And, but there's always like, we end this scene and there's just this moment of air that exists. The Schrodinger notion of it where it's uncertain whether or not we're going to go again or not. And that is defined by the director's call of whether or not we will or not. And he goes, double best that take. And Ashton and I look at each other, we're crying, Neil's crying, everybody, cast and crew are crying. And we go, we did something here today. It's just for us, just for the people that are, the, the 40, 50 people that are on set here, we did something. And then I get to play it. And I get to lift them and was like, wow, that's what it became. Because we did this thing, wearing a stupid suit on a, a set. And then hundreds of people applied their skill and their talent and their passion and their diligence to that. And then they moved it down the conveyor belt and these people put their skill and their passion, their diligence towards it. And then people play it. And then they then interpret it. And that becomes art. One of my favorite stories is Michelangelo. If you've, if you've never been to Florence, and I didn't care about going to Florence. And my wife had been and on our honeymoon. She's like, we got to go to Florence. I was like, okay, you get two days in Florence. And... We, we stayed right next to the, the Duomo, which before there was the Vatican, there was the Duomo. And it's like the Medici's, like before there was, Rome was always the eternal city, but Florence was like, this was the happening spot. And Michelangelo would walk past the Duomo every day to his studio. And on the side of the Duomo, which is this huge, huge church, is just like a little alleyway. And if you ever walk inside the Duomo, the entire floors are marble, the walls are marble. It's just this beautiful um, piece of art itself. 
And on the side of the Duomo, this, their little backyard was this chunk, huge chunk of marble that had been rejected by the builders because it was flawed. Michelangelo would walk by and go, can I have that? And the church was like, no. Okay. Something like for six months, every day walk by. Can, do you mind if I have, you're just sitting there. I've seen it's got bird shit on it now. It's been sitting out there. You're not going to do anything with it. Come on. Can I have that? No. And finally, it was like, I want that chunk of marble. Please, can I have it? And the church finally goes, what are you going to do with it? And for the next two and a half years, he would carve the David out of it. And I didn't care about seeing the David until I saw it. And now to this day, it is my favorite piece of art because it, what it does in a very static way is evoke so many questions from me. And the biggest one is, if you've never seen the David, even just look at a picture, the question that it poses is, is it the moment before he kills the giant or the moment after? Is it, a, is it a moment of stealing himself or is it a moment of triumph or is it a moment of regret? Is it a moment of understanding your life will never be the same way or is not knowing how the battle will go? And he does this all in a singular frame. And that to me is like every, every second of film gets 24 of those. Every second gets 24 of those. And Michelangelo did it in one. He created an entire epic poem in a single frame. And that to me, that's, that's the goal that I'm always shooting for. It's not how big and how broad I can go. It's what's the least amount that I can do? What's the least amount that I can say? What's the least amount that I can emote? It captures that story that makes some doofus sit on a Zoom call on a Sunday night with two friends <laughs> and tell that story. <laughs> Some doofus. Some doofus. This doofus has a name. I got to go make pasta with my wife. That's what we do on Sundays. <laughs> I, 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 here's, here's a little bit of, like, I don't know. Uh, Stephen, are you married? Yes. Okay. I, I am, I'm not newly married. We've been married for about 10 years, I think. I'd have to check with her. She yes. would tell me. Same. Um, there's enough drama in the world. There's enough decisions to be made. We are men of decisions. We're decisive men. Um, I, we, we alleviated one of those potentially catastrophic decisions by implementing a meal per night. Because Sorry. most fights between couples are started, what do you want for dinner tonight? <laughs> <laughs> like, I will murder you. How about that? I'm gonna I'm gonna have your liver <laughs> served up uh, with fava beans and a nice Keani if you ask me that question again. So every night we have like a dinner that's planned and Sunday night we make pasta. So Pam has has been uh, an incredible partner and and mom and she's put she's bathed traveler, put him down so that I can hang out with you guys. I really do appreciate these um, opportunities to have these kind of conversations because it reminds me, it's this great little stirring moment that, that reminds me and, and is, uh, if nothing else, um, prompts me to be uh, incredibly grateful that uh, I've, I've had the opportunity to work with people like yourself and literally you two um, to be able to find a way for me to 
come out of my cave and stop drawing on walls to be able to elevate the way that I tell my story. Well, I will say that it is absolutely, uh, you know, I think speaking for both of us, I mean, I'll let Steve speak for himself, but uh, <laughs> a total pleasure working with you, kind of elevating the the material that that we create, kind of creating this, this material together. But, you know, your mention of meals mm. reminds me yes. that we never asked the first and most important question. What am I drinking? On this show. What it's are you having? Because I did three intros. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's true. You did a lot. You did a lot. We have a lot of choices. I, you know what? I, 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 what for the longest time, I'm a, I, I went from scotch and I was, I was very much of a scotch guy. And that pretty much came from Travis Willingham is one of my oldest and dearest friends. And but by that, I mean, he's incredibly old. I think he's like 92. And uh, he was over at my house one time because I, I, I he was doing an audition and I was like, you need to be the guy that just has like, you know, glass of scotch and you're just talking that way. And we get done with the audition and go, you want to go get a bottle of scotch? And so I got into scotch. And then after that, I was, I was introduced to bourbon. And it was like, if you like scotch, you'll love bourbon and understand the story of bourbon. And so bourbon became the thing for the longest time. And in, in preparation for for pasta night, of course. Um, <laughs> this is, I, I love a good Brunello da Montecino, which if it sounds super fancy, but it's like, it's it's right on the border of the French-Italian border. So you get this great little, you know, complexity in two countries that just like to fight with each other. Um, but at the end of the day, just agree over wine and cheese. So uh, it was a, it was a Sasta Brunello da Montecino, um, which is a, a, a lovely little red wine. Who's that? What are you drinking, Stephen? Melching? I, I had my my standby, my Johnny Walker Blue, interesting, um, which is uh, now now been has been consumed over the course of this delightful conversation. Good man, good man. And you, a dry martini? A dry martini. I have utterly destroyed my uh, my vodka martini. Now, now the last couple of episodes, I've been drinking scotches, but uh, but tonight, um, I What's had a, a scotch. Uh, oh my God. actually, uh, Mc, I almost said McKellen, please. That's the missionary oh. position of scotches. It's <laughs> you and en, you enjoy it, it's yeah, fine, it's but fine. it's it not exciting, done. right? Yeah. It gets it done, right? Um, <laughs> it's uh, I my very favorite oh, is the Mort- you're going back door, oh, yeah, great. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Glenn Livid is more like it's like a, it's like it's like getting a hand job in a Porsche yeah, by a girl you don't you. know, um, no, uh. <laughs> The uh, my favorite scotch is uh, is is the Mortlock, sixteen um, year old Mortlock. It's lovely. All it's, right. uh, it's hard to find here, but it's it's terrific. You and I one one night, my friend, uh, when we rap on this show, maybe like for realsies, not not my rap, your rap, right? Um, we'll be able to. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll get you good scotch. I got I got some <laughs> I got some things working. Um, there there is a, there's a beautiful distillery that I got to go to in 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 just outside of Glasgow. And it's one of the oldest distilleries. Um, it's the only, I want to get this right, I think it's the only Speyside and Highland Scotch because the, the, they, the, the road separates the distillery between the two regions. Um, but yeah, a good malt is, is a good, it's, I appreciate anything that takes diligence, time, and care. Mm-hmm. And that to me is is something that uh, it reminds me to be patient because 
when you go to this distillery, one of the beautiful things is they have a wall that shows, all right, here is what it looks like when it's first bottled. And then here's what it looks like at the end. And it's clear at the very beginning. And what it is, is all of the qualities of that barrel um, and the maturation process that gives it that color and that, that taste. And if you were to drink that first bottle of clear, it'd kill you. <laughs> it'd kill you. But the beauty is, is what happens when you allow yourself to be surrounded by the experience. And, and, and a barrel that they get is always a barrel. It's a sherry barrel that was, you know, wine was made in this or, or cognac was made in this and it's something else. So it actually takes on the life and the experiences of the barrel that was discarded after it was used for this purpose. And to me, that's just a beautiful poetic thing. So if you don't drink, you should. Yes, as much as possible. Yeah. <laughs> Until you get arrested. Wait, no. No, no, but you're right. It's a, it's a perfect metaphor for for making anything. Yeah. Honestly, it's never the one thing in isolation. It's a lot of things. Yeah. Allow yourself to be influenced by the other, even the impurities. I, I have a tattoo that says, we are iron becoming steel. And the process of making steel is beautiful. You take iron, which is an element that is born from an exploding star, but it's a brittle, brittle element. And the way that we make steel is that we add impurities to it. And the process of smelting is heating it up, beating it up and cooling it off and heating it up and beating it up and cooling it off. And um, Arnold Schwarzenegger in that beautiful right. speech that he just said, he the just talked steel. about that. Riddle like, of steel. The more you do that, the harder it gets. And that is us. We are iron becoming steel. We start off very, very brittle. But life beats us up. It heats us up. It beats us up and allows us to cool off and think about it. And it's going to process and do that all over again. But if you understand that it's not doing that because life is our enemy. Adversity is not an enemy. It's, an, it's, it's our friend. It's training us to be better, stronger, sharper. And we can wield that as a weapon or we can use that as a right. form of protection. So, What's stronger, the steel or the arm that wields it? Or is it the will to wield the steel? Well, that's the question. That is a lovely note to end our show on. And when I let... Uh, that's a lovely note, too. Let, 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 let Troy get to his pasta. There it is. That's Can I give you a note reading on that? Yes, please, you son of a, a bitch. A little more vibrato. You, you may, if you like. No, 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 go ahead. There's a way you want to talk, and I want you to do it. I say sabotage. I understand. Sabotage, you sicken me. I understand. No, 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 no. If your mouth was open, you'd be popping pills. <laughs> Thank well, you guys bon, for having me. Bonsoir, Troy. Bonsoir. Bonsoir. Uh, it was a lovely evening, and uh, we hope to have you back on a, on a future show. And uh, that'll do it for us. Our sound engineers are Bill Ritter and Mark Rivera. Our producer is Natalie Miscali. Our co-producers are Peter Holmstrom and Zach Regatz. If you enjoyed if you enjoyed this podcast, check out our sister shows, The 430 Movie, in which a group of industry professionals curate a fantasy theme week of classic movies, The Inglorious Trexperts, the ultimate Star Trek podcast, and The Best Movies Never Made, about films that never saw the light of a projector bulb. You can watch all these podcasts and much more on the free Electric Now video streaming app. Download it today at your favorite app store or download the, uh, the podcast from your favorite podcast store. Screw it. Why not? So until next time, that's, that's all, all folks. folks. Oh, that's cute. Right? <laughs> that's so cute. <laughs> Thank you.
This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production. Engineered by Bill Ritter for the Electric Surge Network.